The Word of God, the Holy Bible, is a treasure and a gift beyond compare. Every passage of it points to a marvelous truth that God's love for man impelled him to step out of eternity and unite with his creation in order to redeem him from sin. Jesus Christ is both the author and subject of this precious word. Join us at the Superior Word each week as we search out this wonderful gift in search of Christ Jesus. Okay, Psalm 77 to the chief musician, to Jeduthun, a Psalm of Asaph. I cried out to God with my voice, to God with my voice, and he gave ear to me. In the day of my trouble, I sought the Lord. My hand was stretched out in the night without ceasing. My soul refused to be comforted. I remembered God and was troubled. I complained and my spirit was overwhelmed. Selah. You hold my eyelids open. I am so troubled that I cannot speak. I have considered the days of old, the years of ancient times. I call to remembrance my song in the night. I meditate within my heart, and my spirit makes diligent search. Will the Lord cast off forever? And will he be favorable no more? Has his mercy ceased forever? Has his promise failed forevermore? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has he in anger shut up his tender mercies? Selah. And I said, this is my anguish. But I will remember the years of the right hand of the Most High. I will remember the works of the Lord. Surely I will remember your wonders of old. I will also meditate on all your work and talk of your deeds. Your way, O God, is in the sanctuary. Who is so great a God as our God? You are the God who does wonders. You have declared your strength among the peoples. You have with your arm redeemed your people the sons of Jacob and Joseph, Selah. The waters saw you, O God. The waters saw you, they were afraid. The depths also trembled. The clouds poured out water. The skies sent out a sound. Your arrows also flashed about. The voice of your thunder was in the whirlwind. The lightnings lit up the world. The earth trembled and shook. Your way was in the sea, your path in the great waters, and your footsteps were not known. You led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. We're in Joshua 19 now. It's verses 32 through 39. This is the inheritance of Naphtali. The sixth lot came out to the children of Naphtali. For the children of Naphtali, according to their families, and their border began at Helef, enclosing the territory from the Terebinth tree and Za'ananim, Adami Nekev and Javneel as far as Lakum, It ended at the Jordan. From Helef, the border extended westward toward Asnot Tabor and went out from there toward Hukok. It adjoined Zebulun on the south side and Asher on the west side and ended at Judah by the Jordan toward the sunrise. And the fortified cities are Zedim, Zer, Hamat, Rakat, Kinneret, Adama, Ramah, Hatzor, Kadesh, Edrei, and Hatzor, Iron, Migdal El, Horem, Bet Anat, and Bet Shemesh. Nineteen cities with their villages. This was the inheritance of the tribe of the children of Naphtali, according to their families, the cities and their villages. Each week studying these tribal land grants in Joshua has been a new adventure for me. 
I wake up Monday morning, usually still wiped out from Sunday, and get into the sermon wondering, will this week fit the pattern already seen concerning a typological picture of things to come? It concerns me because the passage would otherwise be a lot of names and directions that have no real bearing on our lives. How do you write a sermon on something that is, frankly, otherwise tedious? The answer is to make up a life application or a word of motivational encouragement, which really has nothing to do with the text itself. That is easy enough to do, but I personally find it even more tedious than just reading and evaluating the verses from a grammatical and historical context. I would feel dirty that I had not provided you with something truly edifying that has a real and substantial connection to Jesus Christ. As with the previous land grants, this grant to Naphtali takes little things that are seemingly irrelevant and they jump out of the text and say, hey, look here, there is a mystery waiting to be uncovered. It is the most exciting thing to me. There is Jesus again. God is telling us a story about Jesus. Our text verse comes from Romans chapter 5. But the free gift is not like the offense. For if by the one man's offense many died, much more the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abounded to many. And the gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned. For the judgment which came from one offense resulted in condemnation. But the free gift which came from many offenses resulted in justification. The words of Paul reveal a contrast. There is the offense and there is grace. There is the man, Adam, and there is the man, Jesus Christ. There are wages and there is the gift. Note to translators, free gift is a redundancy. There is sin in Adam and there is sinless perfection in Christ. There is judgment in Adam leading to condemnation and there is judgment upon Christ leading to justification. Such things are set forth for us to consider and act upon if we are wise. But these things weren't just seen in Christ and then written down by Paul and the other apostles. They were also anticipated in Christ as written down by the authors of the Old Testament. We will see such contrasts today in an otherwise obscure passage about the borders of the land grant to the tribe of the sixth son born to Jacob. As always, I started the sermon having no idea how things would turn out. And as has been the case with the previous five land grants, there's an underlying story to tell. Let's get to it. Great things are to be found in his superior word. And so, let us turn to that precious word once again, and may God speak to us through his word today, and may his glorious name ever be praised. Our first thought today is the sixth lot. It is verses 32 through 39. The narrative continues with the details of the final seven tribal land inheritances, which are being assigned according to the lot. The first was to Benjamin. The second was to Simeon. The third went to Zebulun. Does anybody remember what Zebulun pictured? Christ. Well, that's true. Very, very good. The rapture. The fourth went to Issachar. The fifth went to Asher. The six is now designated and detailed for the tribe of Naphtali. Verse 32, the sixth lot came out to the children of Naphtali for the children of Naphtali according to their families. Like with the tribe of Issachar, the wording is curiously different than most other such statements concerning the lot for a tribe. 
it repeats the name Naphtali. Livne Naphtali Yatsa Hagorel Hashelishi Livne Naphtali Le Mishpotam. Two sons Naphtali went out the lot, the six, two sons Naphtali to their families. For example, last week it said the fifth lot came out for the tribe of the children of Asher according to their families. Only said his name once. As for Naphtali, he was Jacob's sixth son and the second son of Rachel's maidservant Bilhah. The lot drawn for him comes before Dan, despite Dan being born earlier to Bilhah. The sons of the maidservants are detailed after those of Jacob's wives, Leah and Rachel. Why these two are out of birth order is not stated. The reason for the odd mentioning of Naphtali twice in the opening statement, and this is total speculation, may be because he is the sixth son born to Jacob and the sixth lot to be parceled out. In order to avoid any confusion that a mistake was made, the name is repeated. Bollinger defines the number six saying, six is either four plus two, for example, man's world, four, with man's enmity to God, two, brought in, or it is five plus one, the grace of God made of none effect by man's addition to it, or perversion or corruption of it, or it is seven minus one, for example, man's coming short of spiritual perfection. In any case, therefore, it has to do with man. It is the number of imperfection, the human number, the number of man as destitute of God, without God, without Christ. Simply said, it speaks of fallen man. The record of Naphtali's birth is found in Genesis chapter 30. And Rachel's maid, Bilhah, conceived again and bore Jacob a second son. Then Rachel said, with great wrestlings, I have wrestled with my sister, and indeed, I have prevailed. So she called his name Naphtali. In her exclamation, Rachel makes a word game on the verb patal, to twist or to wrestle. For example, the noun patil signifies a cord or thread because of its twisting threads. The verb then also means to be crafty or cunning because such thinking is twisted. The name then means my twistings or my wrestlings, but it has a secondary meaning of crafty. On the march from Sinai to Canaan, Dan, Asher, and Naphtali were stationed north of the tabernacle under the standard of Dan. In the order of marching, this was the final standard to break camp and to move. It is interesting that the youngest son of each handmaid, Asher and Naphtali, are also paired next to each other in the most northern area of Canaan in the tribal land grants. Asher is the most northwestern area of the land along the Mediterranean, and Naphtali is next to him, with the Jordan as his eastern border. As no commentator I read gave a description of this land, or at least a decent one, I asked Sergio to give a brief description of it. He said, it is one of the beautiful ones. It is like a miniature version of Colorado. Forests everywhere, rivers. There's one road. I'd say it is one of the most scenic ones in Israel. It goes in a canyon between two mountains. It's windy and narrow, and it follows a beautiful river, and there are trees on both sides. In the spring, it doesn't look like Israel. It looks like Switzerland. With that, the description of the borders begins saying, verse 33, and their border began at Halef, enclosing the territory from the terebinth tree in Za'ananim. The meaning could be either a tree or the name of a place. The New King James Version says the terebinth, 
but it might be a city name. Vehi Gevulam Mechelef Me'elon Be'za'ananim. And was their border from Helef, from Alon, in Za'ananim? Chelef comes from the noun Chelef, an exchange. In other words, your compensation for this will be this. That comes from Chalaf, a verb signifying to pass on or pass through. The sense is still of a change, though. To get that, we can literally translate the words of Psalm 102, verses 25 and 26. It says there, Of old you laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will endure. Yes, they will all grow old like a garment, like a cloak. You will pass through the word chalaf, them, and they will be passed through chalaf. The idea would be the Lord puts on a garment, passes through that phase of garment wearing, and then takes it off. The garment has now been passed through. Thus, chalef means change or exchange. Alone means oak or terebinth, coming from Allah and oak. As just noted, it is either referring to a particular oak, that is a landmark, or it is a place called oak. There's no article before the word, but it does say in za'ananim. It is hard to be dogmatic. Despite this, the oak comes from a root signifying mighty or strong. When thinking of an oak, one cannot escape the idea because they are mighty and they are strong trees. Tsa'ananim comes from the verb tsa'an, a word found only in Isaiah 33, verse 20. Here's what it says. Look upon Zion, the city of our appointed feasts. Your eyes will see Jerusalem, a quiet home, a tabernacle that will not be taken down. Tsa'an, not one of its stakes will ever be removed, nor will any of its cords be broken. The word means to be taken down, but that is for the purpose of migrating. As the word is plural, it would mean removals or migrations. The name itself is unusually spelled in the Hebrew with a double nun, which is our letter N, nanim, which Abarim calls a mystery, because that is not how one would normally spell such a word. Verse 33 continues, Adami Nekev. What is the meaning? Va'adami ha-nekev, and adami the nekev. Some translation make it two locations, and adami nekev. But the article seems to rightly place it as one, and adami the nekev. Adami comes from adama, ground or land. That is from the same as adam, man or mankind, which is also the name of Adam, our first father. As such, adami can mean either earthly or human, but it can also be my Adam, because the Yud, our letter I, is used as a possessive. To get you to understand this, if you think of Jesus on the cross, he called out Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, okay? El is God. When he said Eli, it means my God. So you have the word Adam with an I at the end, then it would be my Adam or my man. Nekev comes from nakav, to pierce. That figuratively can mean a variety of things as the context demands, such as appoint, designate, blaspheme, and so on. Abarim gives possible meanings such as ruddy hollow or corrugated soil. Taking it simply and without any manipulation at all, it would be translated as my Adam, the pierced. When we get to the typology, we'll see if it fits. 
verse 33 continues, and Jabneel, as far as Lakum, Ve'yavnel ad Lakum, and Jabneel unto Lakum. Yavnel comes from Bana, to build, and El, God. Thus it means built of God, or God causes to build. According to Strong's, Lakum, he's the only one that even commented on this name. It comes from an unused root, thought to mean to stop up by a barricade. He then says, perhaps fortification. From there, verse 33 continues, it ended at the Jordan. Vehi totsotav hayarden, and was its outgoings the Jordan. The Jordan is the descender. With the ending of this at the Jordan, the eastern border is easily identified as the Jordan, including the waters of Merom, which we saw in Joshua 11:5, and also the Sea of Galilee. This would place Hissachar and Zebulun on the south and Asher on the west. This continues to be described as, verse 34, from Helef, the border extended westward to Asnot Tavor. Annoyingly, the New King James Version inserted the name Helef, causing me probably 30 minutes of wasted effort before I actually got to evaluating this verse in the Hebrew and found out that the word Helef isn't even there. It says, Veshav hagevul yama asnot tavor, and turned the border westward asnot tavor. No Helef there. Well, they should have italicized it, and then I wouldn't have had the problem. I spent 30 minutes trying to figure out what is going on in this verse when it's not even in there. Their translation supposes that Helef was a central point on the northern border, first described as going from Helef to the Jordan and now going from Helef to the west. Now, why would they do that? Because we saw that during the borders of Zebulun. He's standing in the middle of Zebulun. He says, look south. There is the border. Go this way and then go that way. And there was a reason. We saw that. There's a reason why that happened. And so they just assumed that this is what's going on here, inserted a word, and caused all kinds of grief and you to have wrong theology or a wrong idea of what is actually being said. Okay, that is only a supposition. What may actually be the case is that verse 33 describes the west border by Asher along the north and east border. After that, the southern border is being described. Aznot Tavor comes from the verb azan, to give ear or to listen. The first part, aznot, is derived from ozen, ear. The ear is often used to speak of an audience or of hearing. The second half, tavor, according to Strong's, comes from tavar, meaning to break. However, Abarim defines the root as barar, to purify. As such, they say, perhaps the name tavor sounded like purifying to a Hebrew audience, and the whole name, asnot tavor, may have sounded like the balance of purification or ears that hear the word of the Lord and are instrumental in the purification of the person whose head they are attached to. Thus, depending on the root, it is ears, balance of purification, or ears of breaking. Verse 34 continues, and went out from there toward Hukok, Misham Hukoka, from there Hukokward. Hukok comes from Hakak, to cut, inscribe, or decree, by implication, then, to enact laws. Abarim defines it as decree, science, or loving embrace. The third meaning is because the noun chek describes a hollow container in which one's conscious intent, one's reason, and concerns are stored. Hence, the idiom of bringing someone or something into one's bosom. 
Next, verse 34 continues, it adjoined Zebulun on the south side and Asher on the west side. Ufaga bizbulun minegev ube Asher paga miyam, and impinged in Zebulun from south and in Asher impinged from west. Zebulun means glorious dwelling place. The south, or Negev, defines being parched. Asher means happy. The word Yam means both west and sea. Verse 34 continues, and ended at Judah by the Jordan toward the sunrise. Ubihuda hayarden mizrach hashemesh, and in Judah, the Jordan, rising the sun. Judah means praise. The Jordan is the descender. The word Mizrach, place of the sunrise, comes from the verb Zarach, to rise. The reason for that will be seen when the passage typology is explained. Either Judah is a city not mentioned elsewhere in the Bible, it's not known anywhere else as well, or it could be, and this is a description from Cambridge, the 60 cities, Havot Jair in Numbers 32 verse 41, which were on the eastern side of Jordan, opposite Naphtali were reckoned as belonging to Judah because Jair, their founder, was descended on the father's side from Judah through Hezron. That's Cambridge's commentary, and if it is correct, it is a brilliant explanation. I don't agree with it, but I do say that what they thought was very brilliant. Another strong possibility, which I would agree with, is that this is actually referring to Judah, even though Judah is way, way down there and Naphtali is way, way up here, and they don't even abut each other. The reason why is because the Jordan descends to Judah, thus tying this northern tribe to the southern tribe by this watery lifeline of Israel. Judah, being the recipient of the Jordan, could say to possess it in its ultimate sense, just as Judah, the land, possesses Jesus because he descended to there. Everybody got that? Verse 35, and the fortified cities are Zidim, Zer, Hamat, Rakat, Kinneret. Note, the Hebrew says Ha-Zidim, the Zidim. These fortified cities are in the northern area and form a belt of protection from the land to the north, just as Judah was protected from incursion from the south. The names mean Ha-Zidim comes from Tzad, side, being plural, it is the sides. Tsur comes from the root sur. That has multiple meanings. To lean or incline, to confine, secure or besiege, to be an adversary, to form or fashion, and flint or rock. It is not known which root it came from, and so it could have one of many meanings. Most people simply translate it as rock, and that is probably correct. Hamat comes from Hama heat or the sun, some translated as hot springs, but it may mean hotness. That would not merely mean in a temperature sense, but in being angry, agitated, or mentally distressed. Rakat comes from the verb rakak, to spit, or the adjective rakak, thin, weak, or maybe yarak, green. Thus, it is most likely translated as spit, or weak, but many agree that the word means bank or shore because of the logical connection to the thinness of a shore. Kinneret comes from kinor, meaning a type of harp. The reason for the name is the shape of the sea, which looks like a harp when it's viewed from above. The city is named because of the sea, being close by it. The harp is an instrument used for praising, 
prophesying, and making a joyful noise. Verse 36, Adama Rama Hatsor. Adama is the same name as Adama, which is a feminine noun meaning ground or land. It means red ground or earth. Harama or the Rama means the height or the lofty place. Chatzor has various meanings based on a root signifying to begin, to cluster, or gather. It may mean village, trumpet, leak, enclosure, and so on. Verse 37, Kadesh, Edrei, and Chatzor. Kadesh means holy, sacred place, or sanctuary. Edrei means something like mighty. Ein Chatzor means something like spring of the village. Verse 38, Iron, Migdal, El, Horem, Bet Anat, and Bet Shemesh. Yiron comes from Yare, to fear, but that indicates anything from fear to awe-inspiring or even revering. Thus, it may mean place of fear, place of reverence, or something like that. Migdal, El simply means tower of God. Horem comes from Haram, to anathematize. Thus, it means designated or devoted. Bet Anat comes from Bet, house, and Ana, a word having four distinct meanings. To answer or respond, be occupied with, to afflict, oppress, or humble, or to sing. Thus it can mean house of answer, house of business, house of affliction, or house of singing. Bet Shamash means house of the sun. Verse 38 continues, 19 cities with their villages. The number doesn't match the name cities, which is very common. We've seen that again and again, but there are, as always, various explanations for this. There may be joint border cities, names used as references of where the border goes to. Some cities may be co-located and thus be one city with a joint name and so forth. The meaning of the number is more noteworthy than the explanations for the number of cities. Bullinger defines the number 19 saying, it is a combination of 10 and 9 and would denote the perfection of divine order, 10, connected with judgment, 9. It is the gematria of Eve and of Job. With that, the verses end with, verse 39 finishes, this was the inheritance of the tribe of the children of Naphtali, according to their families, the cities, and their villages. Zot nachalat mate bene Naphtali le mishpotam heirim ve chatzrehen. This inheritance tribe Naphtali to their families, their cities, and their villages. With this, the cities of Naphtali, along with some of its borders, have been defined. What is the Lord telling us with all of these names? The borders tell a story of wonder ahead, giving us hints of the coming Christ. They also speak of those for whom his blood was shed, precious souls for whom his life was priced. The naming of the cities gives a contrast for us to see. There is life in Adam, or there is life in Christ. The division is marked out for us precisely. That is seen in our response to his sacrifice. Let us pay heed to the borders of Naphtali and to the naming of its fortified cities as well. In them, there are marvelous things to see. Yes, they have a stupendous story to tell. Our second thought today is pictures of Christ. As noted in the first verse of the passage, the wording is curiously different than we have seen. Two sons, Naphtali, went out the lot, these six, two sons, Naphtali, to their families. My speculation was that this may be because he is the sixth son born to Jacob 
and the sixth lot to be parceled out. Thus, there is a double six implied in the inheritance. As was explained, six simply speaks of fallen man. I propose, and I think you'll agree, this first border description speaks of the work of Jesus Christ. The first location was Helef, change or exchange. It speaks of the second man replacing the first as stated by Paul in 1 Corinthians. And so it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. One might say, well, that's not correct because Christ was not fallen. But Philippians 3 verse 8 tells us that Christ was found in appearance as a man. Though not fallen, that doesn't negate his ministry in such an appearance. This would explain the name Helef even more fully. As seen, it comes from Chalaf, to pass through in the sense of an exchange. This is exactly what Christ did in exchanging his heavenly aspect for a human aspect. That is then explained by the next two locations, Alon and Za'ananim. Alon, though meaning oak, carries with it the idea of being mighty, and thus signifies Christ's state, which was then removed, Za'ananim, removals or migrations, in his migration to the earth. As noted, the name Za'ananim is unusually spelled with a double nun, which is our letter N, which Abarim calls a mystery. Considering Christ, however, it seems to resolve the mystery. The meaning of the letter is continue, offspring, meaning an heir, and son. That seems obvious. He is the Son of God and the heir of all things. Hebrews 1 says, God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things through whom he also made the worlds. As noted, the next location is Adami Nekev, which I translated in the most simple form as my Adam or my man, the pierced. No explanation is needed when taken in light of the surrounding text. It is the most marvelous description of the Lord Jesus one can imagine. Think of his incarnation, and he ends up getting pierced. The border then continued to Javneel, or built of God. That is an exacting description of Christ's human form. Again, to Hebrews chapter 10. Therefore, when he came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offering you did not desire, but a body you have prepared for me, built of God. The building blocks of Christ's humanity are carefully recorded throughout Scripture in the people who were interwoven into his genealogy as God directed the redemptive narrative. After that, the border went unto Lakhum, a word that Strong's guessed that its root means fortification. However, and this may be complete manipulation on my part, but I don't think so. The word kum means to arise. When prefixed by the letter Lamed, it says Lakhum, the same word, to arise. Both spellings are identical without the manufactured vowel points, Lakhum. As such, this signifies the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So in this one verse, you've got his incarnation, you've got his being pierced, and you've got his resurrection. It next said that the border then had its outgoings at the descender. Christ, in his coming to earth, descended from heaven. Christ came and died, but he also resurrected in his time of descent. The picture really is quite marvelous. 
I now propose, and I think you'll agree, this next border description speaks of the effects of the work of Jesus Christ for his people. This then is the opposite of the land of Judah, where Christ's work was seen in the southern border and the effects of his work were seen in the northern border. I don't know if you remember that, but it was very clear in Judah. The southern border presented Christ's work and then the effects of Christ's work were seen in the northern border. Now it's exactly the opposite. Christ's work is seen in the northern border and the effects of his work are being seen in the southern border. And this makes complete sense when considering that Jerusalem is the focal point of the work of God in Christ. Hence, his work encompasses the borders of the land and the effects are contained within. It's rather marvelous. Thus, verse 34 began with the border having turned westward toward Asnot Tabor, or ears of purification. Westward in the Bible is the direction as one heads toward God. It speaks of ears that hear the purifying word as one accepts the gospel, such as in Romans 10:17. So then faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God, ears of purification. Then that went toward hukok, which Abarim translated as loving embrace. It is the metaphorical picture of being accepted by God because of an acceptance of the gospel. Everything is following in order. It all makes sense. The border then was said to impinge on Zebulun and Asher. It speaks of both the heavenly promise, remember the rapture, and the state of that promise, the glorious dwelling place in a state which is happy or blessed. So it only impinges. It doesn't do anything else. The name means both in Asher, blessed and happy. With that, it says the border went in Judah, the Jordan, rising the sun. A direct translation would be in praise, the descender, rising the sun. It is an exacting description of what believers do and will do forever. The rising of the sun, again, like in other verses in Joshua, anticipates Christ as described in Malachi 4. But to you who fear my name, the son of righteousness shall arise, Zarach, with healing in his wings, and you shall go out and grow fat like stall-fed calves. Verses 35 through 38 name the fortified cities within these borders. Like with Asher of the previous passage, these look less to the work of Christ or the effects of his work than to the state of things based on the work of Christ. Hatzidim, the Zidim, means the sides. There are one of two sides in which one can be, in Christ or not. Zer, rock, signifies where one places his trust. Deuteronomy 32, for their rock, Sur, is not like our rock, Sur. So you've got the contrast again. Hamat, hotness, reflects the attitude of the people, being in a passion toward God or toward the things of the world. Rakat, or Shur, gives a clear connection to whether one is in Christ or not. On which shore of the descender, the Jordan, Jesus, does one stand? Kinneret, harp, deals with praising prophesying, and making a joyful noise. Again, we do this in relation to God in Christ, either for him or for the world without him. We have the choice. Adama, earth, gives us another contrast, remembering that the passage is based on sets of sixes. Adam, or as Paul calls him, the second man, meaning the last Adam. One either has his foot on the ground in Adam, remaining in the earth, or in Christ, who will redeem us from the earth. Ha-Ramah, or the Rama, 
bears the same connotation as in the previous sermons. One can either mistakenly place himself in the lofty place through self-exaltation, or the Lord will place him in the lofty place because he chose to exalt the Lord. Chatzor, village, from a root signifying clustering, gives another exacting contrast. How will a person incline himself? It is either towards Christ or it is towards the world. We keep seeing contrasts in these names. Kadesh, holy or sanctuary, indicates one is either found in Christ or in Adam. Only one place will please God. Edrei, mighty, again speaks of placing one's confidence. Christ is mighty to save. Adam, not so much. And Hatsor, the spring, the fountain of a village, carries the same contrasting connotation. Where one has clustered is where one's fountain, and thus his source of life is found. The last verse of names carries the same contrasting thoughts. Iron, place of reverence, points out how one reveres the world of man or the world of Christ. Migdal El, tower of God, is contrasted to the tower of man, meaning Babel and all that accompanies her. Horem, coming from haram, or anathematized, and meaning designated or devoted, is very clear. One is devoted to God in Christ, or he is anathema, and to be destroyed. Just two options are available to man. Betanat comes from a word having several distinct meanings. We went through all four of them. We cannot know which meaning was on God's mind when these were laid out. But, each of them gives a sound contrast between Adam and Christ. Listen to them and you decide. House of answer, you can go one of two ways. House of business can go one of two ways. House of affliction can go either way. Or house of singing. Please consider each and its contrast. Finally, Beit Shemesh, or house of the sun. As noted in Joshua 15, this provides a picture of the eternal nature of the light of Christ the son of righteousness found in Malachi 4. Thus, house of the sun speaks of Christ dwelling among his people. The contrast is to be separated from God forever. Matthew 8, and I say to you that many will come from east and west and sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the sons of the kingdom will be cast into outer darkness. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. There is the world of fallen Adam under the rule of Satan, and there is the redeemed world of Jesus Christ. The contrast is clear. With that, the note of there being 19 cities was provided. As Bollinger defines it, it is a combination of 10 and 9 and would denote the perfection of divine order connected with judgment. There is judgment upon sin in Christ or there will be judgment of sin apart from Christ. This is the perfection of divine order seen in the borders and fortified cities of Naphtali. There is fallen Adam represented by the number six, and there is the replacement of him by Christ represented in the second six, where God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. To think about what God did for us in the giving of Christ never gets old. Here we are walking on life's path, heaping up our debt before God, but Christ steps in and offers us a new and a better hope. That truly is grace, God's unmerited favor. He was under no obligation to do a thing, and yet he determined that it was worth the cost of living his life among us. 
entering into our stream of existence, our miserable stream of existence, and bringing us back to himself. From Christ's first moment of human existence, he placed himself under the authority of fallen humanity. When he was born, he was wholly dependent on the provision of Joseph and Mary. As he lived, he placed himself under the care of women for his support. He also entrusted himself to the authority of both Israel and Rome without complaint or retort. The Jews rejected him, the Romans crucified him, and since then, most of the world either ignores him or bizarrely hates him, preferring to stay in Adam and apart from his goodness. It's hard to figure, but this is Jesus. And this is the love of God in him that offers those who come to him something new. For those who are in Christ, let us act like it is so, committing ourselves to the Lord anew each day. Let the old things continue to pass away. Let Adam be set aside constantly as you pursue Christ the Lord in all you do. May it be so for each of us until that great day when we arise to be in his image forever and ever. Amen. Amen. What a wonderful story. You know, and the funny thing is, I said this at the beginning of the sermon, I had no idea what would be in this passage or any of the other passage we've done. And the first thing I do is to evaluate the passage. I don't try to think of typology at all. I don't even consider. I just do all of the evaluation. And then I say, Lord, let's see if something can come out of this. None of this is pre-planned. None of this is, you know, I'm going to pull this out to make this fit here. That doesn't happen. And when I have to make a guess, I always say, this is speculation or this is just my opinion because I don't want to mislead you. But the rest of these things I am 100% sure about. God has told us the story of Jesus Christ again in this word. Why did he give us these borders? Who cares otherwise? What's the point? What's the purpose? If God says, this is my word, and this is useful for correction and instruction of the man in righteousness, or however he says it, I'm getting that wrong. But if he says that, and then he puts all these things in here, and it's not for that, but it is. It is. It's wonderful what God has done. So I would ask you today that if you've listened to this sermon and you have never called on Jesus Christ, there is a contrast in your life and in all of our lives. You are either in Christ or you are not in Christ. You are either going to heaven or you are not going to heaven. There's one or the other of all of these things that we have seen today. That's our only choice. And so I would ask you to consider, to think about it, and to call on Jesus. And to simply say, the gospel, the simple gospel is, Christ died for my sins. Christ was buried. Christ rose again. I believe that message. That's the gospel. God doesn't want anything else from you. He just wants you to believe that all of this is about him and what he has done in his son, Jesus, and to accept that premise. And that's the toughest thing of all. It's easy to give money to a church if you have a lot of money. It's easy to help people across the road and say, I did a good thing today. It's easy to say, well, I'm not as bad as Adolf Hitler. Those things are simple. If you think about it, people all over the world do it every single day. The tough part is to yield yourself to someone and say, I am committing my eternity to you when all I have is your word to tell me that you did these things for me. It's not easy, but once you've done it, it is the most freeing thing of all is to know that the sin debt has been paid and you don't have to do anymore. It's all done for you by somebody else, by your creator. Please call on Jesus today. Our closing verse comes from Colossians 3. It's verses 9 and 10. Here we go. 
Do not lie to one another since you have put off the old man with his deeds and have put on the new man who is renewed in knowledge according to the image of him who created him. We've got an exchange to make. Make it. Next week is Joshua 19. It's verses 40 through 48. It's all about Jesus. He is the man. Yes. And hurrah. It's entitled The Inheritance of Dan and that of Joshua. That'll be our 43rd Joshua sermon. The Lord has you exactly where he wants you. He has a good plan and a purpose for you. It is he who defeated the enemy and who now offers his people rest. And so follow him and trust him and he will do marvelous things for you and through you. Okay? Now, I'm going to see if I can do something in the next 30 seconds. I didn't write down a question this week. So I got to find something very quickly. Okay, I got one right here. Jonah is written about Nineveh and the redemption of Nineveh, right? They all, they humbled themselves before the Lord, okay? All right. What is the book that details the judgment on Nineveh? No. Three, two, one. No. You didn't hear? Okay. Judgment on Nineveh. Which book in the Bible details judgment on Nineveh? Jonah. Okay, you're all wrong. It's Nahum. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Nahum, the Elkishite. Hang on. Hang on. Let me find this. It is. Well, it has to be because um, you've got, you've got um, let me see if I can find it really quickly here. Um, really quickly. I've got to see if I can find this. Give me just a second. Uh, the book of Jonah, so it's got to be after Jonah, right, folks? Micah, hang on. Habakkuk, Nahum, here it is. It says here, um, the burden against Nineveh, the book of the vision of Nahum the Elkishite. Begins the book, folks. Okay, nobody, we got to wait next week to get your public gift certificate. Yeah. Hey, that was right off the top of the head there. Oh, yeah. <laughs> okay, I'm sorry, but you'll never forget that one, will you? We had a couple good guesses that were all wrong, but did anybody say Nahum? Because, okay, I didn't think so. I was hearing names and I was ignoring them. I was waiting for the right one, but okay, here we go. We got a uh, poem. We got a poem about the inheritance of Naphtali. The sixth lot came out to the children of Naphtali. For the children of Naphtali, according to their families, we see. And their border began at Halef, enclosing the territory from Za'anim's terebinth tree. Adami Nakev and Jabneel, as far as Lakum, it ended at the Jordan. Really, no joke. From Helef, the Borden extended westward to Aznatavor and went out from there toward Hukok. It adjoined Zebulun on the south side and Asher on the west side and ended at Judah by the Jordan toward the sunrise. And the fortified cities are Zedim, Zer, Hamat, Rakat, Kinneret, Adama, Ramah, Hatzor, but that's not all the prize. Kadesh, Edrei, and Hatsor, Iron, Migdol, El, Harem, Beit Anat, and Beit Shemesh, 19 cities with their villages too. This was the inheritance of the tribe of the children of Naphtali, according to their families, the cities and their villages. These they did accrue. Lord God, turn our hearts to be obedient to your word. Give us wisdom to be ever faithful to you. May we carefully heed each thing we have heard. Yes, Lord God, may our hearts be faithful and true, and we shall be content and satisfied in you alone. We will follow you as we sing our songs of praise. 
Hallelujah to you, to us, your path you have shown. Hallelujah. We shall sing to you for all of our days. Hallelujah and amen. Now, listen to this. Adami Nekev, Javneel, as far as Lakum. Adami Nekev, my man, the pierced. Javneel, built of God, as far as to arise. Three cities in a row that give us a part of the picture of Christ. I, you know, it's just, and the whole thing does is, I just happened to see that when I was reading the poem and said, it's just wonderful. And it ended at the Jordan, the descender, the one who came to live among us. It's just, what a great story. Heavenly Father, we're so thankful for this word. It is so precious. It just is, it goes on and on and on with the beauty and the majesty that it displays concerning the giving of your son. Thank you for that. And thank you for the release of our sin because we all sin in big ways, sometimes in small ways, all the time. Our thoughts are perverse. The things we do do not match what you would have us do. We have difficulty with each other. We have difficulty with our bosses. We have difficulties in the morning and difficulties at night. And it's just a world that's fallen and trying. So help us to over, overcome this world by renewing ourselves in Christ every day until the day when you come to take us home. And may that day be soon. Thank you, O oh God. Amen. Okay, sorry about that. I just didn't think of a question until the last second. Just, you know, I'm, usually I do that. And I've gotten into the habit because Ron always annoys me in the morning. And so I don't want to forget to do my question. And so his annoying reminds me to do a question. Today I didn't happen to do that. So they're out in California and they're having a good time and we're getting ready for a, a wedding out there. Um, yeah. Oh, and one thing I forgot to mention at the beginning of the service. I, I won't give a name because I, I never have permission without... Uh, you know, somebody saying, yes, you can do this, but somebody led a person to the Lord last night, and he is just asking for prayer for the ability to uh, meet the challenge of discipling him. And that's not an easy thing, but I'm going to tell you, if he does it, I told him, you're going to learn more being a teacher than you will ever learn being a student. It's until you get out there and teach, you really don't grasp how to unpackage things. And that's, I found that out when I had uh, the chair at the beach with my sign, Bible questions answered, don't be shy. And I'm telling you, when you don't know an answer to a question and you have to suddenly think of all the things you know, but you've never explained, your brain begins to work completely differently. So keep this gentleman in prayer as he disciples this person. And uh, I had one more thing to say, and I can't remember what it is. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs>